I want to put them all in a room. Uh, I want to create a safe environment where we can actually admit to one another things that we had worked on in the past, what had worked and what hadn't worked. And then maybe we can figure out how to move forward from there. And that was basically the motivation for us creating this task force. And then I think there is a general consensus among all China watchers of whatever stripe, whatever administrations, whatever uh, party, that we still want good relations with China. That We're stressing that, but that within that framework, we're going to have to be a little firmer, as I said, and a little bit more reciprocity. So I think the general lines are good. And the thing that's about this report is I've never, I've been in a lot of task forces. I've never seen one with so many concrete, specific recommendations. It's conceptual and strategic and historical, but it's got a lot of tools that the administration can use for good as well as for firmness. You know, we have seen a, a lot of progress in China, mm -hmm. even with all the problems they have now. And uh, there is, I feel, a kind of natural affinity between Chinese people and American people that we need to, to, uh, to reinforce that through our own actions uh, so that even as our two countries become more competitive, let's sort of have a hard-headed but generous spirit. China 21 is produced by the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. We are a university-based think tank that produces original research to anchor major policy discussions on China and its relationship to the United States. This podcast features expert voices, insights, and stories about Chinese economy, politics, society, and the implications for international affairs. Learn more at china.ucsd.edu. Welcome to China 21, the podcast for the 21st Century China Center. I'm your host, Samuel Choi. We're honored to be joined by two of the most prominent experts on U.S.-China relations, who have each served in government in formulating U.S. foreign policy towards China. Professor Susan Shirk, founder and chair of our center, research professor here at GPS, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia for President Clinton. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. And we also have former ambassador to China, Winston Lord, who served the State Department under both Presidents Reagan and Clinton. Welcome, Winston. Good to be here. Professor Shirk and Ambassador Lord are members of a bipartisan task force that just launched a report on U.S. policy towards China with detailed policy recommendations for the Trump administration. It's already making waves in major media outlets in English and Chinese, and they are here at UC San Diego today along with co-author Orville Shell of Asia Society to present the task force findings and recommendations. Susan, congratulations on a timely, comprehensive, and what looks to be an impactful report. Um, I know it has been a labor of love for you in the last 18 months. You and your co-chair, Orville Shell, convene a group of 20 top thinkers from various ex expertise areas and senior officials who have served for every president since Nixon. Can you start us off by describing the process and motivation behind assembling this task force? Well, Orville and I had been talking for some time about our own uncertainty, our own confusion in our minds about how U.S. approach to China might need to change. Because it was pretty clear to us that the approach we had been using ever since Nixon 
um, and I could talk about what that is, but it, it just wasn't working as well as it had, especially before the global financial crisis. And there were some actions on China's part that were negatively affecting U.S. interests, and we thought, well, should we be tougher? Should we be softer? How should we recalibrate the policy? And so, selfishly, my own motivation was, I want to pick the people I most respect, their knowledge, their judgment, their policy, strategic vision. Mm -hmm. I want to put them all in a room. Uh, I want to create a safe environment where we can actually admit to one another things that we had worked on in the past, what had worked and what hadn't worked. And then maybe we can figure out how to move forward from there. And that was basically the motivation mm -hmm. for us creating this task force. And we've been meeting for over 18 months. It was a very intense experience. And um, uh, I'm happy to say that it, it really turned out well. I, I feel that we all learned a lot uh, from the process. And actually, we plan to stay together uh, so that we can continue to serve as an independent, uh, vo bipartisan voice on China policy during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. As you noted, um, the approach to China um, has evolved since Nixon. And in the report, um, it coined the term principal position of strength. Uh -huh. Could you elaborate more on that approach? Okay, so our consistent approach over Republican and Democratic administrations since Nixon is often called as a shorthand, engagement plus a hedge. Well, what that means is engage with China across the board in all aspects of our relationship to try to create a foundation for a constructive relationship despite the differences in our political systems and values despite the fact that China's a rising power, we're the dominant power, all of the challenges we face, but still try to engage constructively. But the hedge is the U.S. Uh, forward deployed forces in Asia, our alliances in Asia, and people often think about that as, well, if engagement fails, then we have the backstop mm -hmm. of our ability to defend our allies and ourselves if we need to. But we thought that was not really a complete way of understanding what the policy was. That because that position of military strength in Asia that the United States has isn't just a hedge. It's also a source of influence on China. It helps us diplomatically in our efforts with China. So we changed the notion to engagement from a principled position of strength in Asia. And the principled part is also about international law and international rules and norms, mm. which of course the U.S. helped establish after World War II, but they're not just ours. They're ones that are widely shared as legitimate by the whole world. So we thought we'd add that because especially international law related to maritime issues as well as other issues 
is an important, again, a source of influence on China's own choices. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Susan. I want to turn to Winston. Um, as noted in the report, there is a high degree of continuity over the decades uh, through both Republican and Democratic administrations, and you've served in both um, parties. Um, president Trump, starting with his phone call with the Taiwanese president, had made several foreign policy missteps when it uh, comes to Asia and China. Since um, the launch of the report last week, um, what has been the reception in Washington, uh, especially from uh, both parties, um, and especially among the foreign policy establishment? First, let me say there have been some steps in the last few weeks that are somewhat reassuring, not only in China policy, but Asia policy. And as Susan was just explaining, you have to look at China policy as part of our Asian policy, and it's very important to do that. So General Mattis's trip out to Korea and uh, Japan, reassuring our alliances, was good. And then, of course, Trump reaffirming the one China policy. Now, we take credit for that because that's very prominent in our report. We briefed the administration last Sunday and Monday uh, and Tuesday. The report came out on that Tuesday, and within two days after Mr. Trump carefully studied every word, he clearly changed his mind. So that's the good news. The bad news is the way it unfolded. Because by raising this issue in the first place and saying he might change the foundations, which we stress are important, the basic theme of the report is maintain the basic foundations, but given changing circumstances and Chinese actions, within that framework, you've got to be a little more firm and you've got to have more reciprocity. Mm -hmm. But by raising this issue, it's one the Chinese clearly weren't going to budge on. It's too fundamental to them. So at some point, he was going to have to change, unless you want an absolute crisis. And by doing it this way, uh, it looks like he is caved in, Mr. Trump, mm -hmm. because the Chinese wouldn't even take his phone call after he talked to 18 other world leaders until this issue was resolved. So there's a danger that the Chinese and other countries might think he's a paper tiger and rolled over quickly. He, in turn, might hear what I'm saying, not only tweet against me, but say, in effect, if I've been outmaneuvered, it looks like, to the world, I'm going to have to do something stupid somewhere else. Mm. So I wanted to make those comments, but your general point, I think it's too early to tell the reception. I think it is fair to say that the people we talked to, both congressional and executive branch, uh, I think were quite receptive, beyond being polite. Uh, and I think most of the advisors of Trump, for example, wanted to reaffirm our alliances and wanted to reaffirm One China. Uh, <clears throat> and therefore, they even the part that was tough on Trump in this report, they were somewhat receptive to and maybe could use in their debates. Mm. And then I think there is a general consensus among all China watchers of whatever stripe, whatever administrations, whatever uh, party, that we still want good relations with China. That We're stressing that, but that within that framework, we're going to have to be a little firmer, as I said, and a little bit more reciprocity. So I think the general lines are good. And the thing that's about this report is I've never, I've been in a lot of task forces. I've never seen one with so many concrete, specific recommendations. It's conceptual and strategic and historical, but it's got a lot of tools that the administration can use for good as well as for firmness. And the good, of course, as Susan has indicated, mostly on global issues, our problems are mostly in the region. Mm -hmm. And so um, since President Trump has walked back his previous statements about using one China principle is a bargaining chip, and now one that China policy. one China policy, not principle. China, uh, Beijing talks about one China principle. It's these, you know, it's it's the uh, theology of mm -hmm. China policy. Right. So the one China policy, 
um, as a bargaining chip. And now that communication between President Trump and President Xi has resumed, uh, which is very important at that level, especially on the Chinese side, what kind of groundwork must be laid going forward um, among the two uh, uh, nations for a better and more constructive relationship? Well, first, we recommend in the report that the first step is that the president go to our allies, particularly South Korea and Japan, but also places like Australia and even Singapore early in his administration. We think that's important. But at the same time, he can signal that he wants to meet with the Chinese as well. Now, to be very candid, I would be a little more cautious with this president meeting quickly with the Chinese until there's a real education taking place. Mm a real review of strategy and approach. Uh, if, if say, Mrs. And this is not a partisan, it's just an observation of the fact that Mr. Trump has less experience. If you had Hillary Clinton, you could get her up to speed pretty quickly to go to China. Mm-hmm. I'm worried if Trump starts talking with Xi uh, at great length, that right now things might go off the rails. And Susan may or may not agree with me on that. So ordinarily, I think we'd be pushing for, after a trip to Korea and Japan, meeting with Xi. be better if we didn't go to China. It'd be better for symbolic reasons, they could at least meet halfway and so on. But uh, I think in this particular case, we've got to make sure that the centers of power in the administration are established, the strategy is worked out so that the right things are said when you're engaging with the Chinese. How, how do you feel about that? No, I mean, we emphasize the importance of good communication at the top because decision-making in China has become more centralized under Xi Jinping. The foreign ministry doesn't count for much anymore. So you can't just engage with the foreign ministry. And uh, the leader-to-leader contact is very important. And of course, it looks like in the United States, this administration is looking more and more like the Chinese one in some respects. I mean, of course, we're hoping that that's not the case and that uh, the cabinet officers will play their constitutional role. Well, it looks like they may have had some impact already on the one That's China right. aspect, with right, the, with right. allies and so on. Yeah. yeah, and Secretary of State Tillerson, right. you know, may have really persuaded the president that he has to uh, reaffirm one China. But anyway, uh, communication at the top is very important, especially if we're going to be more firm and sometimes impose costs on China, we need to explain very clearly what our objective is and how China could um, uh, respond in a way that would move us back on a positive path. But I certainly agree with Winston here Mm -hmm. that there's uh, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of tutoring that mm-hmm. needs to be done by uh, the president's foreign policy advisors. Mm-hmm. So, because these issues are really complex, and you know, it's true for most new presidents sure. that it takes some time mm-hmm. to get up to speed. So let's not rush uh, to meet with Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. But I think it should be done, certainly, in the first year for mm-hmm. sure. In fact, <clears throat> ideally, and this would be true of any president, particularly this one, rather than one big. Uh, extravaganza summit meeting and all kinds of expectations and the stakes are very high. I think we'd like to see multiple meetings over the year because they go to international conferences and and organizations, the United Nations, Asian groups, where they're both there anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see sitting down lower key 
explorations of directions multiple times rather, and without huge expectations built up mm -hmm. in advance. That would be true of any president. I think it's particularly important for this mm -hmm. one. Right, but I also really favor um, an informal atmosphere rather than, okay, now you've got an hour and a half with right. talking points and with consecutive interpretation, which as you know, can you know, also cut the amount of actual conversation in half. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point, and I, I've always been in favor of it, and I think Susan has as well, precisely uh, of this kind of, they tried it at Sunnylands uh, with Xi and Obama, it only was partly successful, but where you kick most of the assistants out of the room, you get rid of your talking points, and you get into strategic directions and set signals for your bureaucracies, shirt sleeves, diplomacy, as you say, which takes time, and you can't have an hour and a half on the edge of a, of a summit meeting or of a, a multilateral meeting. I, I'm a little more nervous with this president doing that, uh, frankly, uh, but it is the way to go, as she points out. Mm -hmm. So as President Trump and his team continue to study this report and catch up to speed on Asia policy, he's already um, have to respond to several tests. And, you know, just this over this last weekend, North Korea launched a missile into the Sea of Japan and also, he's been meeting with, um, welcoming um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe from Japan um, in his golf course and in D.C. So They kept the results of the golf tournament uh, secret, I noticed. Uh, yeah. It was very smart. So what is your assessment of um, President Trump's response so far to the um, missile launch as well as his interactions with other heads of state? Well, obviously, all he could do as a holding action was to denounce it, and it, it was useful to do it jointly with, with Abe. I would point out it's provocative, uh, at least it was intercontinental, if it had been, I mean uh, intermediate, mm -hmm. if it had been intercontinental, which could reach the United States, it would be even more urgent issue, but it, that's going to come at us for the next few years, no matter what happens. So I, I think it's too early to judge his response. I mean, like in so many other issues, he made some brash statements during the campaign and, and since then about this will never happen, whether, whether that means missile test or actual launching. So he's going to have to sort, sort this one out. I, we say in the report it's the single most urgent issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's more of a threat to our national security than terrorism. And I yield to no one on my concern about terrorism. But mm -hmm. this one is certainly the most urgent in terms of a possible impact directly on America. Mm -hmm. And um, among the other uh, short-term priorities that were listed in the report, um, such as Asia-Pacific security alliances, climate change cooperation, uh, and addressing the imbalance in trade and civil society cooperation exchanges, is there uh, a member in the president's cabinet or team that gives you the most worry? And on the other hand, is there anyone that's been receiving uh, this, these recommendations that you um, see as the most receptive? Well, I don't want to name names here because we're still hoping that there's a learning process going on. Um, but I think the economic and uh, trade, trade and investment relationship is in big trouble. And that is a major problem uh, for maintaining the foundation of the relationship because American companies feel that there's no longer a level playing field in China. Uh, they're severely disadvantaged by China's 
protectionism by its whole approach to making its own economy stronger, which is to uh, twist the arms of foreign companies to transfer technology to China uh, so that they can leapfrog and become move ahead of the United States and other countries. And they're also, of course, going out and buying up technologies, including here in San Diego and other parts of the United States that they want to bring back to China. All of this is legal. There's nothing illegal about it. But it is um, harming our companies. Of course, they also are the target of China cyber hacking, theft of intellectual property and commercial secrets. So uh, we have a lot of dialogues with China about this, but we're not getting much action. Mm -hmm. And so we're advocating now a uh, kind of a two-prong approach to this problem. One prong is uh, tougher enforcement of WTO rules and our own trade laws. Uh, and I think this is the sort of thing that the Trump administration will be very comfortable with. And we think it's needed too. But it needs to be targeted on particular complaints. The whole idea of across the board punitive tariffs on China or all imports is a formula for a trade war with China. And uh, it, it could be very, very traumatic and damaging for the whole global economy as well as for the United States. So we don't favor that, but targeted enforcement makes sense. Mm -hmm. The other leg of our approach is to be more cooperative to, uh, well, originally we hoped to have TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then to work with China on a roadmap of uh, agreements that would gradually bring them to the point where they could join the TPP. Mm -hmm. But without TPP, we don't have that destination. So what we're going to need to do instead, unless we can revive TPP, which would be the first choice, is to negotiate a series of agreements, including some international agreements like the services one um, on government procurement that bring China in line with uh, global standards. And that will address the kind of systemic um, factors in the Chinese economy, not just one sector or one firm that are really disadvantaging us. And we hope that the reform-minded people in China, because remember, China has um, a reform agenda under Xi Jinping, uh, the 13th Party Congress laid it out, but they haven't gone very far to carry it out. So we're hoping to align with that domestic goal of reform mm -hmm. through that positive side of our efforts. So two legs to our approach. Mm -hmm. The loss of the TPP is huge. And of course, the Democrats are to blame for this as well as, as, well as Trump. Uh, you can argue the economic merits. Uh, I won't get into detail here, but uh, most of us think it even had strong economic merits, particularly in some of these newer problems which aren't covered by other agreements like China's alternative mm -hmm. arrangement. Uh, so 
that loss was significant, but there's also a geopolitical loss in terms of our presence and credibility in Asia. Yeah. We, we can't just have a military dimension to the rebalancing. It's got to have economic as well as diplomatic, mm -hmm. and they were pretty good about showing up at organizations and joining them. So it, it does shake the region's uh, image of the United States as, and its staying power in Asia. So we, we hope that we can find through some measures like Susan has outlined a way to sort of recover that loss. But in the short term, it's very serious. I mean. mm -hmm. And the report also examined some longer term issues, um, uh, broader issues such as human rights uh, and climate change. Um, and Winston, you were ambassador to China during the Tiananmen Square uh, protests and massacre. How do you see the prospects of domestic reform, uh, especially in light of um, the rising tide of populism among Western democracies and how Chinese people view democratic uh, processes and systems, and also um, in a current landscape here in America where there's such severe polarization and gridlock? There's about three good questions there. So if I miss one, please come back at yeah. me. <clears throat> I was only there the first week of the demonstration, so I really wasn't there doing Tiananmen Square. Uh, first, let me make a general point that I want to make, and that is uh, the Chinese are not 10 feet tall, and we have every reason to be competitive with them in the coming decades if we get our own act together. And the fact that we are so polarized and democracy as a model is so tarnished uh, is really unfortunate. But the other part of that is that China has its own problems. And Susan Shirk wrote a very prescient book several years ago called The Fragile Superpower, which pointed out that because the conventional wisdom is China's a juggernaut economically, uh, militarily, diplomatically, and there's no question they're a rising power, and we can compete with that. Uh, but we ought to remember that in, in comparative terms, we have a lot of advantages over China. I want to enumerate them here. Now, to get more to your question, uh, one of the losses uh, in our foreign policy in general, as well as with Asia and China, is this polarization and gridlock uh, in, in the United States. Uh, it, it has to do with we have the right allocation of resources, uh, what kind of a model for democracy do we have. So it's very, very serious. Uh, and if you start challenging the rule of law or free press uh, and you have other defects arising in our society, it gives the Chinese sort of an open field, however disingenuous, to say we've got a great system and the Americans are increasingly chaotic. And Mr. Xi could go to Davos about a month ago and say he's for free trade and globalization when he's just the opposite. So that, that's unfortunate. On the domestic side, more generally, unfortunately, very bad trends which we detail in this report in terms of human rights. We still feel we should affirm our values even on the domestic abuses, but we understand that the Chinese people themselves are going to have to fix that over time. But we still do it because it reflects our values, it maintains domestic support for our policy, it encourages Chinese reformers, it holds China uh, to its international obligations, and over time it serves concrete interests because open societies are less have to fight each other, harbor terrorists willingly, export refugees, cover up pandemics. So there's a lot of reasons. But what's mm -hmm. new and what we stress in this report is not only are they abusing their people at home, but they're abusing foreign sovereignty, our sovereignty and they're exporting some of their abuses. And they're cutting down on flows between our civil societies and personal and cultural exchanges, which have been some strong measures of support 
for this relationship in the past. I don't have time to go into all the details here, but we feel whatever one debates about how much you can accomplish change within China, we have got to defend our sovereignty. Well, they have free reign with their propaganda and their think tanks uh, in mm-hmm. this country and their media above all, and we are totally restricted within China. There's an anti-Western campaign going on. There's a new law that regulates non-governmental organizations. So it's not only anti-Western, it's also exporting abuses, violating our sovereignty. So we come up with a series of recommendations to try to push back on that. Mm -hmm. And Susan, um, you have um, talked before about the lack of reciprocity, and that's really spelled out in the report in both trade as well as uh, relations in civil society. Can you elaborate more on the tools that we might have going forward in correcting that imbalance? Well, we, uh, in the process of working on this report, one thing that really comes through uh, to me that I understand, I think, more than I ever did before was uh, that China has a lot of clout, a lot of ways to, uh, if we do something, to retaliate against us. And, and we've seen them retaliating now against South Korea because they don't like the missile defense system being put in place there. You know, they harass uh, the South Korean company that has offered up its golf course, I think, to put the missile defense system. And mm-hmm. they go do all sorts of investigations of every branch of this company in China, as well as uh, Korean cultural products being uh, kept out of China, and they've done it against the UK for meeting the Dalai Lama, they've done it against the Philippines. You know, they have no qualms about using the government, using their market power to punish other countries. And our two countries are so intertwined, our economies are so intertwined. We, all, you know, so there are many ways that they could retaliate if we take steps against them. Also, um, we don't want the Chinese economy to uh, falter. You know, the Chinese economy has been an engine of global growth. It's good for the U.S. when the Chinese economy does well. And it's good for countries in South America, Latin America, uh, Africa, everywhere. So it's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. to figure out what tools we could actually use. So we are suggesting that we leverage on the economic side this huge enthusiasm that Chinese firms have for investing in the United States. Now, we want that investment. It creates jobs. It's good. Of course, we want to protect our security, but otherwise, it's good. But. Maybe we need to find ways of insisting that our firms be at least gain access to whole sectors they're not allowed to invest in now before we open up the economy completely to Chinese investment. And I think we should start with this bilateral investment treaty that'll uh, create some common agreement on that so it, we won't get into a pure tit-for-tat Uh, process. On the human rights issues and the media uh, and um, civil society, you know, if 
our journalists and scholars can't get visas to go to China because they've written things that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like, then we're advocating uh, that we also should not give visas to mm. their uh, comparable people. Not necessarily their journalists, maybe. Maybe it's the media executives or some other way. We don't lay out exactly how to do that, but we can use visas too. Mm -hmm. uh, that we shouldn't have a problem with. Uh, setting up think tanks, you know, maybe we don't make it so easy for the Chinese to do that here, mm -hmm. although we don't want to turn into China. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to keep our free society. Yes. We also advocate, just as China has these Confucius Institutes here, why don't they have American centers? You know, what, what, what are we going to call them now? Confucius. Institutes. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll find something. Think, yeah. um, you know, George Washington Institutes or Thomas Jefferson Institutes uh, in China. So, you know, at, but we're going to communicate at very high levels about this and we're going to say, look, we're really, this can't continue like this. Mm -hmm. It's because we, our societies need to have unfettered access to mm -hmm. one another. Yeah, there's no question they have economic clout. A, a classic example is Mongolia has welcomed the Dalai Lama for decades. There's a very close religious connection here. Mm -hmm. uh, but after the last go-round, Mongolia has now apologized for inviting the Dalai Lama uh, and says it won't happen again because the, they're so dependent on the Chinese economy. But mm -hmm. as Susan said, if you want good relations with China, you've got to be willing to undergo some friction and tension that you just can't just roll over because you don't want to annoy them. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to push back. But whether it's these areas or other areas, you've got to do it in a smart way and not a blunderbuss way. And you've got to do it that targets their specific interests. Another example in the civil society one, and this is so crucial because all the constituents who want good relations are being affected. Uh, you know, the bilateral cultural, business, educational, uh, NGO, academic, legal exchanges uh, are all being compressed while China has free reign here. But for example, we negotiated an agreement a couple of years ago on multiple entry visas that are good for 10 years, which means you could keep coming under the same visa uh, to the other country. We've been allowing the Chinese scholars and, and think tankers and others to do that coming this direction. But if one of our academics uh, says something they don't like, they get on a blacklist, they may not get a visa at all, uh, but if they do, they've got to get an, a new one every year instead of the 10-year one that was supposedly uh, in effect. So we could certainly, that's a very specific example, where we could just say, mm -hmm. okay, all you guys coming here from China, uh, you're going to have to get a visa every time. And this mm -hmm. is not a cosmic issue, but it's symbolic of the kind of smart response that we have to come up with. Mm -hmm. And um, on the topic of free flow information and of people, um, Winston, you serve on the board of overseers at the International Rescue Committee, which helps refugees rebuild yeah. their lives around the world. Um, and today we have the worst refugee crisis since yeah. World War II. And major powers that have traditionally resettled refugees, especially in the United States, are expecting or are, are, um, experiencing a nativist um, and restri restrictionist backlash, especially under President Trump. Right who's already enacting um, on a lot of um, bans on travel um, from various Muslim countries, as well as a ban on uh, refugee resettlement. 
um, or halt on refugee resettlement. Um, what is the prospect in your mind of leadership um, in the U.S. or China or neither um, in responding to global humanitarian crisis and generally human rights challenges? Uh, this is another example where minority democracy is not working so well these days, and it gets a bad name against China on open field. <clears throat> and uh, I won't go in detail now, but I feel strongly about this issue because immigrants are some of our best citizens. They're hungry for, they're carefully vetted, immigrants or refugees, carefully vetted for security reasons. Uh, and we lose uh, real skills that our businesses need. It affects our demographic trends in the future. We're not a graying society, not so much because of birth rate, because of immigration. So there's a whole host of reasons why this was a bad policy and it's still being sorted out. Unfortunately, you can't look to the Chinese for much help. For example, one of the most egregious things they do is when you have North Koreans escaping from their country, China, under international law, if they have legitimate fears of persecution, is supposed to take them in as mm -hmm. uh, an asylum. And they send them back to North Korea to horrendous uh, futures. So their example on a specific refugee issue is very bad. Now, maybe on other more less sensitive political refugees, maybe that's a kind of global issue they can begin to be more mm -hmm. uh, open about. There are some global issues, and we want to stress, we're hitting the bad spots here, and there are plenty of them. But there are many issues, including responding to natural disasters, where they don't have our military capabilities and so on, but they're beginning to get more engaged. For example, on Ebola, they also had to mm -hmm. become more forthcoming. So we want to keep in mind, and one reason Susan said we don't want to wreck this relationship is already on the global level, with some clear exceptions, there's some important cooperation, whether it's climate change, the Iran nuclear deal, Afghanistan, fighting piracy, fighting terrorism, uh, fighting pandemics, uh, good mill-to-mill -mill, uh, talks in terms of avoiding miscalculation. So, and they're the second or first uh, the Chinese or contributor to UN peacekeeping missions. So. Mm -hmm. It's not all bad news. The problem is it's mostly as closer to get to China, uh, the more difficult the issues uh, become. So I've ranged widely from your question, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't have much hope for China on the refugee issue, but there are other areas and global issues they might be helpful mm -hmm. on. But don't you think maybe they can contribute even if they don't house refugees themselves? You know, I mean, they can contribute financially. Oh, yeah, sure, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I, I think Liz Economy, who's one of our task force members, you know, uh, thinks that we, that's an agenda we should be pursuing with right. China. Right. Yeah, the North Korean dimension may be, is yeah. particularly sensitive for them, so that may be the exception, hopefully. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's a lousy exception. So to wrap up here, um, are there any part of the report in terms of the recommendations that you would like our listeners to stay engaged in, especially on the people-to-people -people level and just uh, and really uh, enliven a healthy debate about U.S.-China relations in the next four years? Well, um, I do think the people-to-people -people dimension is very important. And we, in San Diego, there's a lot going on in that regard. And we need to make it very robust. Mm -hmm. We want to keep it alive. I would also encourage students to go to China to study. Uh, you know, of course, air pollution, and there are other reasons that discourage people from going, but uh, it's a great, uh, great experience. And, you know, I've, I've like uh, Winston, we, we've been going to China since 1971. In fact, your first trip and my first trip were exactly the same time. <laughs> 
Um, uh, but of course he went with Henry Kissinger and I went with a student group. Um, but, you know, we have seen a, a lot of progress in China, mm -hmm. even with all the problems they have now. And uh, there is, I feel, a kind of natural affinity between Chinese people and American people that we need to, to, uh, to reinforce that through our own actions uh, so that even as our two countries become more competitive, let's sort of have a hard-headed but generous spirit toward China. I yeah, and say. a self-confident one. And getting back yeah. to my point of Susan's pointing out they have their problems. And she did this years before people, it became conventional wisdom. And we having inherent strengths, which right now we're squandering, uh, a little self-confidence. But that's only going to come if we get our own act together. Yeah. Specifically in universities, since we're in that complex, mm -hmm. there's several issues here. Many Chinese students with great skills after they've studied here that we'd love to have stay here for our own self-interest reasons go back because of stupid visa restrictions we have. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm greatly in favor of as many students going back and forth as possible and in principle of American universities having satellites in China. But now you've got a real problem with the academic freedom. And we say in our report uh, that universities should examine whether the principle of academic freedom on, on Chinese campuses is being preserved because they've even issued uh, from the highest levels in China an edict against teaching seven areas of discussion, democracy, uh, free press, rule of law, how much it's enforced and how much they get around it, I'm not clear. Hmm. But I think our universities have got to take a hard look and, and hopefully we can continue it because I do believe that there is this affinity uh, and that we've got to nurture these civil society and personal connections which have been so helpful in the past which are now souring uh, and threaten their relationship along with the business community which has always been a strong supporter and now is getting increasingly frustrated. So we've worked all our lives, Susan and I have, for good Chinese relations with us. That's still our objective but we feel that that's going to require a little bit firmer that the Chinese respect you when you're firm without being bellicose and they'll probe weakness. And so that's the theme in our report uh, to try to build a better relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure and my honor to speak with you. And thank you so much for your work on this task force and for embodying sound judgment, clarity, and thoughtfulness um, in these uncertain times. Uh, we look forward to seeing how this roadmap will guide our foreign policy towards a more positive direction and inform a healthy public debate about U.S.-China relations. Thank you. Thank well, you. thank you, and uh, Winston. I hope this is the uh, that you'll be coming back to visit us for, again uh, in the future, both for intellectual reasons, personal reasons <laughs> with Susan, and not necessarily in third place, the climate and the beauty of this city. <laughs> Listeners, uh, you can view and download the full task force report on our website, china.ucsd.edu. Thank you for listening to China 21, the podcast of the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and connect with us on social media. 谢谢大家。